This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Tom O'Flynn, CFO of AES, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 362. Then there came a day when you get a phone call. Is that is that as simple as it begins? I mean, it when- is. It is as simple as that. I'm sitting in my office and my phone rings and I just picked it up and I hear on the other end of the line, hi, this is Steve Jobs and I have a company that I'd like to tell you about. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we feature the IPO career chapters of four different CFOs, plus the IPO ambitions of one CEO. First, we revisit the IPO career chapter of finance executive Lawrence Levy, who one day receives a call from Steve Jobs, who wants Levy to join him at a small computer animation company known as Pixar. A short time later, with Levy on board as CFO, Pixar goes public. That story and four more after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Then there came a day when you get a phone call. Is that is that as simple as it begins? I mean, it when- is. It is as simple as that. And I'm sitting in my office, and my phone rings, and I just picked it up, and I hear on the other end of the line, "Hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago. I thought we'd work together someday, and I have a company that I'd like to tell you about." And You know, I had a sort of a cascade of reactions at that point, uh, but one of which was uh, he wants to talk to me about Next Computer because that was the company he was most closely associated with. And Next had sort of notoriously got out of the hardware business that it had been started to do. So it was kind of being written off as a company that didn't have a future. And I thought, well, maybe he wants to my help to turn around next. And that's what I assumed. And then when he said, um, the company's name is Pixar, I, I was, I had probably barely heard of Pixar. And so I was sort of like 
to myself, I was, you know, what on earth is Pixar all about? Well, I want to um, dwell on this a little longer because I think it's it's interesting that at that time, Pixar was really its biggest client was Disney. It had one client, really, at that place in time. And the IPO that you were going to help our architect eventually would allow uh, Pixar, of course, to uh, grow into other, uh, you know, into actual movie making instead of sort of outplacement or out- outsourcing it. So what you sign yourself on for is still there's a lot to be done here, and it's unproven in some ways. Completely. And I, and I think, you know, that's very much is the case with sort of startup companies. And, you know, I, I sometimes say it takes a certain amount of naivete to go into a startup. And I probably went into Pixar with a healthy dose of that. Um, I went in there, you know, I went through the sort of interview process. I, you know, I wasn't sure going in what their business strategy was or could be. Uh, you know, they were making software, random end software. They were making animated short films. They were doing commercials. They had this contract with Disney um, for the for the making of Toy Story. They had a bunch of different things going on. And in my mind, I sort of thought, you know, between all those things, maybe it would be possible to, you know, build a robust business with some of those uh, some of those things offsetting the risks of some of the other things. Uh, and so I went in there on that notion. That notion was completely wrong, but at least it's what I was, I was thinking at the beginning. Was there much of a finance function existing in Pixar? Did you have a controller, or what was, uh, what was exactly there? No. I mean, it's true Pixar had been around for a few years, but from a corporate, from a financial point of view, it was – it was a company on life support, I would say. I mean, Steve was covering the payroll for the Pixar employees that were not covered by the, the Disney agreement uh, uh, out of his personal checkbook every month. I mean, he had put – imagine you go to a company and, the, you know, the balance sheet is basically like you know, negative equity, negative $50 million, and there's no – there's really very little to show for that. And so he had gone through a huge amount of money, um, and so – from that side, the um, and there was no there was no finance function really at all within the company. It just hadn't built up those systems at all, and it was had been focused on the technology side, the creative side, the production side. But um, that's what I found when I got there. So I, I again, you you. You're taking something of a leap of faith because as much of a rock star that Steve Jobs was, his stock was a little down at that place in time because Next was not, as you, I think, indicated, not the super success story at that that place in time, clearly. And Jobs had left Apple years earlier. So, um, you know, I mean, did it cross your mind? Am I being captivated by, you know, Silicon Valley's? Uh, you know, champion dream maker here, or uh, is there really a business here? I mean, did, did, what was your, your state of mind when you accepted the position? Well, I was thinking about all of that. I mean, he was, I would say at that point, he was closer to being a has-been than a rock star uh, because he had a string of failures in a row. I mean, a couple of those he'd had at Apple before he left, well-known stories about the, uh, the the original uh, Lisa computer and the original Apple Macintosh computer. Then he left Apple and he 
uh, attempted the next computer, and that didn't work. And there was a Pixar imaging computer, and that didn't work. So this is so. And there were books being written at the time, sort of, you know, in, in some ways, you know, wondering whether it was time to to write him off. Um, but you know, my uh, I spent quite a lot of time in the startup world, and my sense was that. You know, these these things always look very risky, and um, a lot of it is about chemistry, uh, and there's always a lot of challenges, a lot of work to be done. I had a great chemistry with Steve. I had good chemistry with the, the team at Pixar, Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, Bill Reeves, and others, and I felt that I had something complementary to bring to the table, so I, I would bring something that the company didn't have. And I also thought to myself that, you know, I didn't know how they were going to get there, but, you know, these guys were winners. They were doing really incredible work. And so um, and so that left me with a sort of a feeling that this was perhaps a, a, an adventure worth going on. Can you share with us some of the milestones? Uh, and it was only a – it goes public in, uh, you know, shortly after uh, – I, I know the Netscape IPO was sort of a, a memorable was, event. Yeah. And yeah. – um, in some ways, yeah. that helped. Um, well, in some ways, it did. I mean, you know, one of the milestones, you know, I would say things got worse before they get better, got it, before they got better. When I got into Pixar, I think that I uh, took about maybe a couple of months, and, you know, I came to conclude that the company was in more dire straits than I had even imagined. And that was in large measure because I grew to understand the details of the relationship between Pixar and Disney. Uh, and, you know, there was a decent amount of hostility within the company and angst about Steve himself, who had never spent any time at the company and was sort of perceived as a bit of a sort of absentee landlord that, that everyone you know, kind of worried about. And so there were some cultural challenges and then the economic challenges were worse than I thought. So my first milestone was sort of coming home one day and saying, you know, I think I made the biggest mistake of my career. So it went down before it went up. Uh, um, and, but then from there, you know, we, we sort of started to piece together a plan in a way, and, and, um, and that's when things at least started to gain some momentum. Our next CFO is Dustin Williams, who is today CFO of Nutanix. Now, Dustin entered uh, the CFO suite while he was at Western Digital, where he had really climbed the ranks. From Western Digital, he uh, jumped into a string of startups. Along the way, he raised over $3 billion in financing, and uh, he took three of the companies he's been involved with public. Uh, here's where we ask Dustin about the uh, the first one he took public, and we uh, talked to him a little bit about presenting as well. So the first one, uh, which was back in um, in two thousand and seven, uh, that uh, I had to really the whole finance team except for uh, the revenue controller was completely replaced, uh, and it was a mess. And that was, uh, you know, building from the ground up, putting a whole new team of folks in, processes, et cetera. So that was uh, massively heavy lifting. The second uh, company uh, that I took uh, took public in uh, in 2013, I guess, uh, there was a little bit of that, 
uh, some replacing, uh, but not a ton, but it was still some heavy, heavy lifting. I was blessed when I came to Nutanix, pleasantly surprised uh, with the finance and accounting team that we had in place here. It was great. I had two great leaders, you know, one in accounting and one in the finance uh, team there. So I did very little uh, from an organization perspective. Obviously, we built it up. Uh, over time with, you know, additional folks and things like that. But uh, this role, uh, I was able to focus more on, on process, uh, learning the business and getting the company ready to be public. And that was just the more, you know, fine-tuning, you know, like quarter-end things and, and uh, being able to forecast not only bookings but revenue and gross margin, profits and things like that. And I'd say learning the business and, and getting it ready to, to present, uh, you know, eventually to uh, uh, to investors in the financial community. So, so this one was uh, was much easier from that perspective. You have to be prepared to have anything uh, thrown at you, I'd imagine. What what would you tell us about the prep uh, before presenting? Yeah, I think they they pretty much throw everything, and and you know, it's my job to try to. You know, with, within the presentation of materials, to to answer those uh, questions before they're asked, quite honestly. And you know, we give a lot of thought to how how we go about presenting information. And and uh, you know, you've got to. I've always thought, uh, you know, ahead. And if I was an investor or whoever, you know, what questions am I going to ask? What what's going to concern me? And try to present that in a very simplistic manner, well in advance of them having to ask the question. Actually, what would be the most noticeable difference between your first presentation, uh, the first company you took, versus how you present now? Any any changes? Uh, not uh, not uh, massively different. Of course, the businesses were different, so you you, you know you've got different business models uh, and things like that, but. You know, I don't. Uh, I don't think there's. I'm, I'm thinking uh, there's how you communicate and how you, uh, you know, as a presenter, might have uh, changed your style at all. But it doesn't sound oh, like it happened. Yeah. No, I mean, you always, uh, you know, you get prepared and and you uh, you take it seriously, uh, and you have fun at it. And uh, I've had actually uh, more fun. You know, once you do it a few times, you have more and more fun, and it it, it actually becomes. Uh, uh, quite enjoyable uh, from a from a presentation and and presenting of the data actually it's, uh, in the business and you you you're obviously selling the company uh, to individuals and investors and and uh, and telling a story actually everything's kind of a story in, in some regards. Okay, we promised to throw a a CEO in the mix, and you're going to be hearing uh, next from Matt Calkins, who is CEO of Appian, whose company in 2017 went public. We caught up with Matt uh, a little later in the year after that IPO and had the opportunity to talk to him a little bit about how the company is operating, how it's different, and if anything else... Uh, it's interesting to have uh, perhaps the CEO describe the IPO process and the impact on the company uh, alongside how CFOs talk about it. I think it it's kind of revealing in some ways. Here's Matt Calkins. Well, the last 12 months have been incredibly exciting at Appian. We, we got ready 
for an IPO. We did a year of preparation. Our IPO went out in May, and it's been uh, very successful. The IPO has not only been a financial event for us, but more importantly, it's been a publicity event and awareness event. We've got a unique proposition. We're, we're trying to teach the world that the next time uh, companies build unique applications, they could do it on the Appian platform instead of writing it in lines of code. That's a message that needs to get out there, and an IPO event is a great way to kind of raise the curtain on that message and get broad awareness that this is now an industry with a leader, with, with successful clients, with strong revenues, with great growth. We've got, we got Forrester out there we know in a report this summer saying that the low-code industry, that's our industry, is going to be $10 billion two years from now. So predicting vast size, impressive growth, and, uh, and, and we're called out as, as the, uh, the vendor who produces the, the most increase in developer efficiency and the one with the happiest customers and the fastest development times, the quickest time to value. So we're in a great position in a great market, and the IPO was a critical way to let people know that. So we're delighted with the results of the IPO, and you can see it already, right, in the number of new clients that we're bringing on. We brought on almost as many clients in the first half of 2017 than we did in the entirety of 2016. So this, the acceleration is, is happening. And I feel like the IPO was, was essential to that. And so is the, just the burgeoning awareness of the low-code industry and of the great value proposition that we've been developing. Was there ever any concern that becoming a public company could somehow uh, adversely affect the culture that we've been talking about? Well, there's a danger, right, because the investors, the new constituency that you're bringing on, the investor constituency, tends to have a, a shorter timeline, uh, shorter horizon, than is conducive to cultural development. So if you let your investors run the company, they would probably make relatively short-term decisions. And cultural enhancement wouldn't work in a short-term context, and so it would be neglected. Now... In this case, though, investors don't run the company. I've still got a controlling interest. And so we're not going to start adopting a quarterly mentality. We're going to think and act long-term like we always have. And culture is just as big a priority as it ever was. And uh, we're going to stay focused. I think that's the biggest potential risk um, in an IPO is that a company can lose focus. And I loved the, the few moving parts culture that Appian had for a long time. The fact that we didn't have a lot of external constituencies to serve was perfect because it allowed us to focus and, uh, and really drill into the things that matter to us. So I don't want us to get distracted. I think that's the, the top risk and we're going to avoid it as best we can. I know I've got to spend some time talking to investors and going to conferences, uh, but I'll keep that to a reasonable minimum. And outside of me and the CFO, we're going to keep it to almost nothing and not encourage people to watch the ticker or pay much attention uh, to, uh, to where Appian is trading. Thought Leader listeners, we have two more CFO IPO career chapters coming up right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart 
clear and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. A lot's happened since we last spoke to Joe Consul, the former CFO of Zackley Corp. When we did speak to him last, he was CFO, and uh, he had taken Zackley public uh, back in 2015. I think uh, you're about to hear him six months, uh, at least six months after that IPO. At, we are asking him, of course, about his impressions about it, the process, what have you. Joe would eventually uh, take Zackley uh, private again when a private equity investor, of course, uh, took it private. Uh, I think that was like the year following. But in any case, uh, here's Joe within six months of taking Zachley public. You know, it's an amazing process. It's an arduous process. Uh, investors are very discerning. Uh, they're very thoughtful. They're very analytical. And they have very, uh, you know, hard questions that you need to answer as you go through the process. The other company I took public was uh, around 1999, and the market was very frothy at that time. And it was kind of a volume-based market. There were so many deals on the street that uh, it really was tough to get attention. On the contrary, uh, this deal was done at a time when the market was starting to slow down. I think we were the last tech IPO to get out at the time. And, and uh it was very much a quality-driven profit orientation. How quickly can we get this company to a path on profitability rather than just growth at any cost? And I think I'll remember this offering as being centered around that concept. I think if you ask our investors and, and people that have bought exactly stock since the IPO, it's, it's pretty clear, and their priorities are my priorities, so to speak, that we continue to deliver on not only our expectations, but being able to grow the company and further penetrate the $7 billion market opportunity we have in front of us. And, and in the near term, achieve positive cash flow from operations in the fourth quarter of this year. Those are key focal points for, for me as an organization. There are, of course, secondary goals and objectives that we have, but those two by far are the most important in the next 12 months. Okay, it wasn't too long ago that we had the opportunity to speak to John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. John had a post-IPO timeline in which uh, profitability goals were set and had to be met. Here's John. Yes. So the good. So when we went public, we laid out a vision to investors that you know we really embraced as a as a, a management team, and that was that we you know we had a huge opportunity really untapped. We, we thought we could grow really fast, but we wanted to show steady improvement on the bottom line. We were losing money when we went public, uh, but, you know, that's, that's not uncommon in the SaaS world, given the big investments 
you make to acquire customers. But once you get those customers past their acquisition period, you know, thankfully we have very high gross margins, it becomes very profitable. And so really the, the early stage was, and there's a couple different flavors of profitability. The first thing we wanted to get was operating cash flow profitability. And because we were taking, we get about six to seven months upfront in payments on average from our customers. We don't get a year, two years, is maybe more like an enterprise company. But we still get six to seven months, so we're able to, you know, work with our customers' cash. And so we actually put a stake in the sand that we wanted to be operating cash flow positive in 16, and we actually hit that in late 15. And then um, we wanted to get free cash flow positive. So even, you know, when we backed out our CapEx uh, requirements, that was the next stage, and we hit that about a year later. And then the next one is to get non-GAAP profitable, and we hit that earlier this year. And so we constantly put these stakes in the sand and started delivering at them. Now, all of these, theoretically, we could have hit earlier, but we wanted to grow as fast as we can because, obviously, you know, we're in a bit of a land grab mode, and once you get those customer relationships, they stay with you for a long time. And so we were balancing that, you know, making investments in the business, but continuing to show the street that we were delivering on the promises we made when we went public. Hello, Thought Leader listeners. I hope you enjoyed our CFO IPO career chapter uh, episode. Uh, Frequently after we do these types of themed episodes or montages where we have a variety of CFOs featured, I will get emails asking me what was the original episode. So I thought I'd just uh, share a few numbers with you right here in case you wanted to follow up. But Lawrence Levy, who got a phone call from Steve Jobs, you'll find him on episode 258. If you want to do a search for 258, I think it would pop up. John Kinzer of HubSpot joined us for episode 337. Dustin Williams of Nutanix was 330. And Joe Console was way back when on episode 229. Hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.